Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, welcome to Razor Branding Podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome Jay Walker to the show. Um, I've grown up listening to this guy. I mean, all the way back to high school days with him on the radio in the mornings with Mary Gallion on KSNB. This is my high school fangirl freaking out. Um, and now, obviously, as a mature, sophisticated adult, I get to listen to him uh, whenever he's calling Raging Cajuns baseball games and all the other sports that he gets involved with for the school. And that means I haven't gotten to listen to his voice in months. Uh, I have missed it. I'm sure y'all have missed it. And it is so nice to hear his voice today. Jay Walker, welcome to the show. Oh, I appreciate you having me. I've... Uh... You know, I I miss everybody, and 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 you're part of everybody because you know most of the time when I would see you, it would be at Cajun baseball games, and we didn't get to enjoy that together this year, and I feel a little bit cheated as a result. Me too. I have to tell you, I have a lot of favorite Cajuns baseball memories, um, but one of my favorites is when we opened Rousseau Park, and you took that season to come and sit in the seats with us. Uh, where we sit for every game and called the show from right next to me. I didn't even have to wear my headphones that game. I got to see the game live and hear your announcing of it. It was like the perfect world. And uh, and my my godson Colston uh, joined us uh, for uh, for an inning or two, uh, and I still have the pictures of him sitting on my lap while I'm sitting next to you calling the game. You know, and that's one of my favorite pictures. I see you posted every once in a while, as well as Colston's dad. And the thing that makes me laugh is how much he's grown. It's like watching my own kids grow up, even though they live far away. I love that Facebook keeps us connected with his family. He is going to be six in October. That is just crazy. Crazy, yep. crazy, crazy. So between you as his godfather and his namesake, uh, Saint, that he is named for, uh, that kid's going to do very special things one day. Oh, there's no question about it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, let's roll back time to the middle of March. Uh, the pandemic has become a reality affecting all of us. We go to a shelter-in-place order. Uh, all sports are effectively and immediately canceled. And we all sit around and look at each other and try to figure out what spring without Raging Cajuns baseball is going to look like. We were already trying to figure out what it would look like without Tony Robichaux at the helm, but now it's like it's not happening at all. What was that like for you? How did you make that transition? What was that process? Who called who? What happened? Well, you know, I was actually on the air when um, the NCAA made the announcement that spring sport championships had been canceled. Uh, I, it was it happened during the middle of my radio show, and it took a little bit to to process that. And then um, right after that, we had a um, you know we had to, there was a game against McNeese on a Tuesday night that I didn't do. I was coming back from Statesboro, Georgia, having done basketball in the in the conference tournament. And I listened to um, to Ian and, and Brad Topham uh, do the game. And little did we know that would be the last baseball game of, of the season. And so, you know, we found that out. And I guess it was about maybe a week later, we all started doing the radio shows from our houses um, 
because uh, we were we were going remote. Um, and then, of course, about a week after that, um, I was told I was being laid off uh, because of the pandemic. And so I uh, next day I returned all that equipment and uh, and and cleaned out my office and. For the first time in my life, I uh, found myself unemployed, and um, it was a uh, it was not a shock uh, at all. I I even had a conversation the day before with Tim Buckley from the Advertiser, and we were talking about how the lack of sports could affect us. And I said, Tim, I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. And as it turned out, I didn't. Um, but uh, Scott Prather, who was uh, the brand manager at ESPN fourteen twenty. Uh, came to the house to deliver the news. Uh, the general manager offered to call and tell me, and Scott, uh, being a real man, said, no, he's going to hear it from me, and he's going to hear it in person. And I appreciated that, and I appreciate it to this day. Yeah, they're class acts over there. And so when we talk about your first time, you know, not having a job since you were probably a teenager, I would imagine, which was a couple of years ago, what has the last few months looked like for you as you filled your time? And ordinarily, that's filled by watching sports, and there are no live sports to watch. Well, I, I have become friends with Netflix. Um, <laughs> that has been uh, that that's been a, a little bit of it. Um, I spend, I, you know, I still spend a lot of time uh, surfing the internet just to try to stay involved and up to date on things that are going on, not only in sports, but just uh, in the in the country and in the world uh, to begin with. But uh, yeah, there's there's an awful lot of downtime. And uh, at first it kind of felt like a vacation, but now it's been going on for uh, going on four months. And so it's feeling a lot less like a vacation. Right. Now, for people who miss hearing your voice, and want to get some uh, sports analogy from you, they can go to RagingCajuns.com and go to the bird nest and get some old um, and some newer, I think, uh, voices um, of you talking about sports and what's happening in the world, right? Uh, yeah, some of those are written pieces, and some of them are video interviews that I've done with various people. Um, I did one with Gary Broadhead. I did a couple with Dr. Brian Maggard. Uh, I did one with uh, Ashley Brignac, uh, Dr. Ashley Brignac Domek. Um, and it happened to be the we did it on the same day that her victory over Florida and the College World Series was on uh, the NCAA's Facebook page. So we watched the game, and then we talked about it. That was a lot of fun. I uh, haven't done a whole lot uh, in the last month or so because I actually did uh, take some time off and traveled a little bit uh, this month. So I, I really don't have any brand new content, but hopefully I will between now and the time football season begins. So let's talk about when the fall starts, what that's going to look like. There's going to be a big announcement from the Sun Belt today, right? Sun Belt is going to announce today, according to Pat Forty uh, with Yahoo Sports, um, that they are going to postpone the beginning of the fall athletic season until September 3rd. And now that does not affect football because the first football game is scheduled for September 3rd. It's a Thursday night. Um, but it does affect the other fall sports. It affects cross country. It affects soccer. Soccer is going to miss a couple of exhibitions and three regular season games. And I think volleyball gets affected uh, with it uh, as well. Hopefully that's the only announcement they make. If, they, if that's the only announcement they make, I think we're all going to survive. 
Have you heard anything about what markers or milestones they're looking for to feel comfortable with football happening? You know, the, the, the thing that kind of hurts this is college football doesn't have a czar. Okay, you have Mark Emmert, who's the president of the NCAA, but, you know, you don't have like a commissioner for football. You know, you've got 10 commissioners in the FBS um, that all have schools that, you know, they make policy for along with the athletic directors, but you don't have one in general for college football. And you've already seen some FCS conferences, uh, most uh, notably here in our area, the, the, the SWAC has said they're not playing football. Uh, the Ivy League has said, we're not doing anything with January 1st. And a couple of other leagues in the FCS have done that as well. Now, the Southland yesterday made the statement that they're planning to play. And that was good news. That, that kind of heartens me a little bit because honestly, for the last couple of weeks, I've been sitting and wondering, are we going to play football at all? And, and that still is top of mind awareness for me. What, what makes me think yes is there's just so much money in college football that I think that folks are going to do everything they can to play. Um, and the fact that the Southland has said it, that heartens me a little bit. But let's face it, Jackie, you know, this, this virus is still very, very real. Um, you know, over a thousand people, sometimes 2000 people a day in the state of Louisiana are becoming infected. Uh, in other states, it's even crazier. And, you know, and that's the other thing we have to remember, even if we're good here, you know, your schedule involves the state of Georgia, your schedule involves the state of Texas. Um, and so not only do you have to have your act together, the other guys do too. So I'm hopeful. I'm, um, let me say cautiously optimistic. And at the same time, I'm a realist. I think we have a ways to go here. Right. No, I would agree. And them playing doesn't necessarily mean they're fans in the stands to watch. We'll have to see how that's going to turn out. Any gut on what you think they're going to try to do with um, getting some social distancing into the stands and still allowing 100,000 people in Tiger Stadium, for example? Uh, I don't think you're going to get 100,000 people in Tiger Stadium. Um, I think if you're lucky, you'll get half that. Um, because, because right now, phase two says 50% capacity. Um, and not even, not even LSU can say, oh yeah, but we don't have to do that because we're LSU. Um, so they'll be lucky if they get half that, you know, uh, I think if we do play, I think masks are going to be required. Um, whether it, whether it be in Tiger Stadium or Cajun Field or anywhere else. Uh, I do think that social distancing is going to be enforced. Now, I saw what that looked like at Cajun Field when my daughter graduated high school a couple of weeks ago. I, I was able to see what social distancing looks like. And it's it's different. I mean, there, there's not much I can say except it's very different. So, you know, if you if you do have fans in the stands, Social distancing and masks, I think, are going to be part of the deal. I'll be very surprised if they're not.
Right. No, I would agree. Um, that is one of the favorite um, bright spot memes for me that has come out of all of this is the trolling that has gone on. Uh, that if anybody needs to know what that should look like, they can just look at an Atlanta Falcons game from last season because they already act that way with so few people in their stands during the game. Uh, so, you know, everybody's finding their humor where they can. Now, we've That's been right. looking at high school and what LHSAA is going to do, and it sounds like they're pretty committed to making sure there's a football season. Yes, they. Um, Eddie Bonine, uh, who is the um, commissioner of the Louisiana High School Athletic Association, issued a statement today, said, we've been flooded with emails, we're listening, we want you to know we're hearing what you have to say, and our plan is this, if schools are open, we will play. Um, now, they have, um, he has also suggested that these folks that have been emailing him, they need to also email the legislature. They also need to uh, email the, their local government and and let their desires and concerns be known. Um, but that just came out today. And if they're, if they're able to do it, I know that there are going to be a lot of people uh, that are going to be really, really happy. And if they... If they're not able to do it, then some of the people that are going to complain the loudest are going to be those people that didn't social distance, that didn't keep their hands clean, that didn't wear a mask, and they'll blame everybody except themselves. Right. You know, it's somebody mentioned to me the other day, they seemed uh, both shocked and surprised to discover that LHSAA is not a governmental entity. It's a private organization. So that advice to get in touch with legislators to really um, express your views one way or the other, they're the ones making the rules, along with the governor, of course. Um, this private um, association that schools pay to belong to doesn't really have any governing authority except over its members. Well, that's true. And, um, you know, look, who's going to decide whether schools are going to be open? Well, it's going to be your, your local parish school boards. Right. They're the ones that are going to make that decision. Now, it could be a statewide mandate, possibly so, but, uh, but it's going to start with your local schools. And, you know, the various parishes around here have different ideas as to how it's going to happen. I know St. Landry Parish is going to be all virtual to start. Uh, and that, you know, in Lafayette, uh, parents are going to have an option uh, whether they wanted their children to do virtual or, or if they want them to go to school and they're planning to have schools open with the proper distancing methods and everything else. So, you know, it is it, it's local government right now. It's lo your local school boards who are the ones that are that are making the plans and making the decisions, at least for right now. Right. No, it's, it's a crazy time. And I think, you know, everybody wants sports because it's going to feel normal. So we'll see what happens as the pros kick in. And we've got basketball starting up. We've got baseball starting up. We're going to have some sports at least to watch on TV, which will be kind of nice because I'm running out of documentaries after the last dance and the Lance Armstrong 30 for 30. I'm looking for some new content. Well, Major League Baseball starts today. And um, I uh, and I'm happy to report that the. ESPN showing a doubleheader, and the Dodgers are one of them. So guess what I'll be doing tonight? I have to tell you, Jay, the six or seven years that I lived in L.A., going to Dodgers games was one of my absolute favorite things to do. I love that park. Um, I love that area. And it was a fun time to watch the Dodgers in the 90s. I uh, got a chance to go one time. And um, I actually had to go out to Fullerton, California to cover um, – a softball regional for the Cajuns. Steve Pelequin 
had been in an auto accident, broken his leg and he couldn't fly. So I had to go out and do that. And um, when the plane landed, we landed at John Wayne Airport. I went to the hotel. I threw my bags into the hotel and went right to Dodger Stadium and saw Greg Maddox pitch for the Braves. Kevin Brown pitched for the Dodgers. Dodgers won five to two in a game that took two hours and 14 minutes. Wow. That was great. Maddox was was efficient. (laughs) Yes, they both were at that time. Yeah, that was awesome. That was great. Um, you know, I take each kid to L.A. on their 18th birthday. That's kind of our little mother-child trip. And so a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of taking Jackson, and we got to catch a Dodgers game. Um, our game lasted five and a half hours. Uh, the final wow. score was 28-2. to um, And we got to see every position player throw about 20 pitches as they ran out of pitching in the fifth inning. <laughs> Wow. It was a very I different like experience. I like your game better too. <laughs> um, my game had a lot less traffic upon the exit though, because we were the only people still in the stadium by the time the game ended. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's right. That's crazy. So let's take it all the way back to the early days. Um, how'd you get your start in radio? Where did you start? What was it like then, especially compared to now? Well, I, I started at KEUN Radio in Eunice. Um, I was taking classes at, uh, at LSUE and I had a night psychology class and uh, Russ Bordelon, who was the uh, program director there at the time, um, happened to sit next to me and I found out who he was and I told him I wanted to get into radio because honestly, uh, that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Uh, you know, little kids when they're five, they want to be a fireman or a cop or, or, or whatever. I wanted to be on the radio. And uh, so I, I recorded an audition tape and uh, they hired me and I did like three hours a week on Saturday night, I think. And of course, back then we played actual records on the radio, 45 RPM records. Um, commercials were played on cartridges. Reel to reel tape was used a lot. And um, we, uh, we thought we were somebody because we had a remote start for our turntables. We'd flip a switch and the turntable would start. We thought we were special. Um, it was, and, and back then, you know, 24-hour radio really didn't exist much. Uh, they signed off every night at uh, 11 o'clock, I think, and then signed on the next morning at 5. So I had to take the radio station off the air uh, on the nights that I worked. And, and, you know, eventually that turned into something full-time. Um, worked a couple of years there and went to, um, went to Abbeville for a couple of years at, at KROF, uh, and then, uh, back to Eunice and then got hired to come to Lafayette, uh, by Mike Mitchell. And I started working at uh, KSMB that was known as K94, um, in uh, June of 1977, June the 20th, as a matter of fact. Wow. So we've just recently passed an anniversary now that we're in July of years you've been on the air uh, by my count that's about 43 years no by my account that's about 40 well 43 oh, for years KSMB. since i came to lafayette sure sure 43 years since i came to lafayette what's the total uh, I, arc my first uh my first radio show i remember that day too 13th of february in 1972 okay and so 48 years 48 years is what i spent in radio all right. I um, I hate when people do this to me, but I'm going to do it to you. So the 13th of February in 1972, I was two days away from my second birthday. 
Good for you. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So we got our start at about the same time. I love that. Um, So I remember listening to you in high school and growing up. um, And I feel like at the time, and I I could be wrong, that y'all were the biggest thing going. I mean, the center of Lafayette seemed to revolve around what y'all were doing at KSMB. Is that, am I remembering that accurately? It it was um, it was a very popular station. It was it was not number one in the ratings, but it was it probably had the most passionate fan base, and the those that were into the station were into the station. They didn't they didn't shop around. They didn't say, okay, let's see what other stations are doing. That was their station. That's all they listened to. They were proud of it, and they were loud. Nice. Um, and we did a lot of live events, which enabled, you know, us to, to interact with, with listeners and stuff. And, um, our listening audience just ate that up. And so that was, you know, that was in the late seventies, early eighties. And then in 1984, the station, uh, switched from an album oriented rock format to a contemporary hit radio format. That's when ratings went through the roof. Yeah. And I, I know the years that you're talking about listening when, when Mary Gallion and I did a morning show together. Yeah, that was pretty much when um, when that radio station ruled the roost by a large margin. Absolutely. I figured that was like 84 to 88, maybe in that range. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a, that's about right. Uh, November 12th of 84. I have all these dates, Jackie. I love November that. 12th of 84. Um, we played Stairway to Heaven. We hit a station ID and came out with Chaka Khan, and um, and then the phones started ringing. I bet they did. That's quite a transition that y'all made. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm surprised our transmitter uh, survived because many people threatened to bomb it. Oh, I have no doubt. No doubt. So I worked my way through college uh, bartending and waiting tables at Poets. And I remember when we used to do the Tenacious Tuesdays, it felt like that was another one of those iconic things that Lafayette gravitated around. Oh, it was, it was, um, tenacious Tuesday, it was done and then it went away and then it came back. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was like everybody went to, po- you know, it's, it's funny how different places were popular at different times. You know, poets always had the tenacious Tuesday thing, but right near the corner, of what is now um, Ambassador Caffrey and Johnston Street in a building that no longer exists, there was a little sh- uh, shopping center and there was a place called America's Favorite Bar. Okay. And that was a huge bar in Lafayette for a couple of three years. And um, we used to have a great time there too. Now, see, I remember Graham Central Station, I remember Scandals, of course, Kingfish. I don't remember that one. What was the one that was multi-story that was like on the uh, the corner of Ambassador and Johnson? It was like multiple clubs. Was that Club Spritz? Oh, it might have been. I, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not remembering that. See, as soon that's, as I, I hear signatures, I'm thinking Gerbeau jeans with a tight roll on the bottom. That's very '80s '90s fashion. Um, I was never a fashionista, so I can't help you with that. <laughs> I think it was people who were shopping at Esprit and Benetton uh, back at the mall in the 80s. I mean, those were some good times to be in Lafayette. It was the heyday, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yep. 
Um, so when was the transition for you from um, being the most popular radio personality in all of Lafayette or the world into sports? Was that an easy transition for you to make? Well, I sports had always been a part of what I did. Um, you know, I started calling high school football on the radio a year after I got into broadcasting. Um, and so I did high school sports off and on the entire time, it seemed. And then in the, um, in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, uh, I was still on, on the air at KSMB. But Channel 15, which was an independent station back then, signed a contract with the university to do like six or seven football games and, and about 15 basketball games a year, both home and on the road. They had their own production truck uh, that would, would go to all of these places. And I was fortunate enough to be selected to do the play-by-play -play for that. And uh, so I did that for a few years, till about 1990, uh, and also started doing high school football on television around that time as well. And so uh, the TV thing lasted until, you know, I, what, five or six years ago. I, I was still doing it when I was in town. Um, but, but that's how my, um, that's how my relationship with UL started, was doing television broadcasts on Channel 15. Now, I got off the air uh, at KSMB in early 1988. Okay. And uh, and was started having to wear a coat and tie to work because I was in management, and um, that went on for about a year and a half. And and the radio station was sold, and Tom Galloway, who owned KSMB and KXKW, sold those properties, turned around and bought KPL KTDY. Now the the agreement was for a three year period, he was not allowed to contact anybody at KSMB or KXKW to go to work. And the day that the three-year period ended, he called me and he said, are you ready to come home? So that's when I went over to KPEL and KTDY, who at the time did not have the broadcast rights. They had lost them to uh, an outfit out of Crowley for three years. And when they got them back in 1992, that's when I started working with Don Allen on, um, on Cajun broadcasts. And um, the first game we did was a, together was a football game at Tennessee. And, um, you know, I was Don's color analyst for about 10 years. And then I then I switched chairs. Right. Right. So when I think of all the Cajuns games you've called and all the Cajuns moments, um, there have been some great ones. And, and I want to know your favorite, not counting the kick, because obviously I think that's the top of the list for everybody. So other than the kick. What is your next favorite Cajuns moment? The kick is actually second on my list. Really? Jackie. I am shocked, yes. Jay. Um, that is second on my list. Okay. The, the first is Scott Doman's pitching performance in Columbia, oh. South Carolina. That got us to the College World Series. Um, the Cajuns went to play the best baseball team on the planet. Absolutely. South Carolina was 50 and 6 during the regular season. They were 55 and eight by the time we got to Columbia. Um, the, the pitcher uh, for South Carolina, Kip Bocknight, took a perfect game into the seventh inning of game one and South Carolina won that game. 
Coach Robe did something that if it didn't work, he would have been criticized for even at his funeral because he decided to pitch a freshman in game two because he felt like if they were going to get to Omaha, he had to have Scott Doman on the mound for game three. So Andy Grove gives up a single, a single, and a double to the first three batters. Rope goes out and talks to him, tells him, quit choking your changeup. Goes back. He gets a, a, a pop out, a strikeout, and a fly ball, and gives up one hit the rest of the way, which forced game three. And Scott gave, uh, gave the Cajuns seven strong, uh, left leading three to two. And we were on pins and needles the last two innings. And South Carolina even let off the bottom of the ninth inning with a double. And I said to myself, why doesn't anything good ever happen to the little guy? <laughs> and um, Gordon O'Brien got two strikeouts and a ground ball. And, um, yeah, that Jackie, we'd have to win the national championship in something for that moment to be topped. That's, that is still my favorite moment 20 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. And, you know, I, I do too, and it, it I have to tell you, it ranks up there for me also. It's funny, though, because I think when so many people think about that series, they think about the two-run bunt that won, you know, that won the game. I don't think Scott gets enough credit for the work he did to deliver the win. He uh, he was amazing. And, and of course, he had he had gotten the ball in game three the year before in a super regional against rice and it didn't go well for him. Right. And the story's pretty well known that he, he cut the box score out of the newspaper and he put it in his locker and he looked at it every day. And he told Tony, if you give me another chance, I'll get you to Omaha. He made the promise and he fulfilled it. Absolutely. So now tell me about your experience with your second favorite moment. Um, I was there in the stands. Michael and I were watching the game along with 50,000 other rabid uh, Cajuns fans. It was a big moment for the school, and I think you called it beautifully. What was going through your mind? Well, one of the things that was going on during the, during the game was Wright Waters, who at the time was the commissioner of the Sunbelt Conference, was sitting in the booth right next to me. Now, the Sun Belt had not had a ton of success uh, in the New Orleans Bowls. Uh, they, had, they had won a, a few, but they lost more than they won. So he's sitting, there, um, he's sitting there watching. He shows me his phone when they delivered the attendance, which was 42,000 plus. It set a record. Um, and, you know, the, you're winning the game. You're winning the game, and you're winning the game. And then you got 30 seconds left and you're losing the game. <laughs> and um, I looked over at Wright and he looked like somebody had just shot his dog. Um, and it was just a, it was a miserable feeling. And then you come out and, and you complete a couple of passes and they send Brett Bear out to try a 55 yard field goal. And there's a penalty right. and it moves five yards a little closer. And I, I remember, and I even said this during the broadcast, that on the monitor, they showed Mark Hudspeth, and you could read his lips, that he's going to make it. He's going to make it. And I even, I even mentioned that before the kick. And it, the feeling was incredible. You know, Wright was, um, you know, he was, he was not, he wasn't 
a hugely big man, but he, but he also wasn't tiny either. And I swear he had hang time uh, <laughs> in, the, in the booth next door. He just, he, he jumped up in the air and, and I, I'm telling you, Jackie, he had hang time. He was so happy. And um, what I remember is after we did the post game show, tore everything down and started to leave, I was on my way back to my car and I saw Tyla, Coach Hud's wife, standing outside in the hallway underneath the stadium. And I just put all the equipment down and I went and I just hugged her for a long time. Um, you know, I told uh, somebody one time, I've called a lot of bad football in my career. Uh, I, I remember a five-year period from... Um, 1997 to 2001, when the Cajuns won um, nine games total in five years. So being a part of that, the first bowl game that they had played in in modern times, and to win it the way they did and to be able to sit and call that and remember all of the bad football I'd seen over the years – it was it was a really really big thrill and um, you know they they played I, a couple of nights later I guess they played replayed the game on ESPN fourteen twenty and I got a chance to listen to it and I don't um, I don't usually get that out of control when something happens uh, I, I'm kind of never too high never too low but yeah I lost it on that one. I lost it. And and you know what? I'm not sorry either. I think you just showed the emotion of the moment. I think that you were present and you had a very accurate, um, really look at what that moment was going to mean to Cajuns fans. Because you think about what happened for the next decade of football and, and what we've been able to enjoy compared to the decade previously, as you mentioned, nine wins in five years. That whole season was a seminal turning point for us. No, it was, and and it was a it was a season that nobody expected. You know, if, if you remember, there was one uh, publication that came out, preseason publication that ranked the teams from one to one hundred and twenty, and we were one hundred and twenty. We were dead last, and um, you know, HUD was a tremendous motivator. And uh, he surrounded himself with some pretty good coaches. And they got the most uh, out of those guys and wound up uh, wound up having a, a heck of a year. And to get that New Orleans Bowl invitation, that was special because you were going to get to do it and you were going to get to do it right down the street where your fans could come and, and participate. I, I do remember, though, that by the time the game ended, because it started like at 8 o'clock. So by the time we were getting out of there, it was almost one o'clock in the morning. We were exhausted and we didn't, we didn't even celebrate. We just, you know, went back to the hotel and went to bed and, and because it was, you know, people, all you did was sit on your butt and do the game. It's true. But let me tell you something, mental fatigue causes physical fatigue. And I was wiped out when it was over with. That whole game was such an emotional roller coaster, and being in the city with all those Cajuns fans, um, you know, for for all of the challenges later in the relationship, I will be forever thankful to Coach Hud for what he brought to us 
and the the bar with which he raised our program um, in terms of expectations and excellence. And I don't think we have a Coach Napier if we didn't have a Coach HUD. And so, um, you know, I appreciate that and, and all that he brought to us. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that uh, I think that, you know, as you said, the the last couple of years, he 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 probably made a couple of mistakes with some things that he said or some things that he allowed to happen. But it's not going to take away from four New Orleans Bowl wins in a row, one of them over Tulane with a huge crowd on hand where they had to open the upper deck for the only time that's ever happened in New Orleans Bowl history. Um those days were fun. Those days were fun. And you're right. You know, there's no way if HUD doesn't have success, there's no way we get Billy Napier to come to Lafayette. Yeah, no way. Saban Jr., he doesn't come here unless he sees what we can do to support a winning team. Absolutely. Yes. Um, yes. The quality of our football has increased greatly. Um, you know, I knew we'd get to it eventually, but let's talk baseball. It was a hard year, I think, for all of us last year. And it's been really weird now not having baseball at all, much less not having Coach Rope. So take us back to last year and, and walk us through that time, if you can. Well, I was actually on vacation. Um, actually, what I did was I, I brought my daughter. She was invited to a seminar for the Future Medical Leaders of America, and it was at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And so I brought her up there. And of course, I'm from that area of the country. So it kind of turned into a mini vacation. And it was then that Tony had his heart attack. And um, we got back into town, I guess, on a Saturday night. By that time, he was already at Oshner's. And I felt so... Um, I was all those miles away. I wasn't getting like updates. I didn't know. All I could do was say, you know what, if they had to move them to Oshner's, that's not good. Right. And that's about all I knew. And um, on the morning when he passed away on that Wednesday morning, ironically, I got a phone call from John Sheff, who of course had been an assistant under Tony, now the head coach of Virginia Tech. I hadn't talked to John in a couple of years and he said, um, what's going on? And I said, John, we're just waiting for a phone call uh, because I talked to Ken Myers earlier that day. And, and he said, either God's coming down or Tony's going up. Um, and uh, the first one would have been okay because a lot of us would have gone with him. Um, but you know, it, and it was, while I was on the phone with John, that I got a text saying that that Tony had passed, and the radio show I did that day was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. And um, Scott Prather was terrific because he stayed with me the entire three hours. Um, and the the amazing thing about that show is. We never once talked about baseball. Right. I listened. And the, you know, the, the, the visitation, you know, 
you don't have 6,000 people come to your visitation just because you won baseball games. And I think the impact that we saw there and at the funeral for those folks that, that didn't get it, they got it that day. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's been hard. Um, and, and it's still hard. I, I miss him. Um, I worked with him for 25 years. We had a lot of private conversations. Um, he told me a lot of things that I've never told anyone because when Tony spoke, I could easily differentiate stuff that I could repeat and stuff that I couldn't. Um, the anniversary of his death this year, um, your cousin and uh, my good friend Craig Malonson and Brad Topham and I, we all went out to the oak tree right across from the ballpark. We uh, ate some hot dogs and had a few beers and just reminisced. Later on that night, Scott Doman and Phil Devey and their families showed up at the ballpark. They had a portable table. They set the table. They had table and chairs. They, uh, I saw bags from Tsunami, and they ate right there by the statue. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if, 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 if we're ever going to get over it. I, I really believed that this past baseball season was going to be a big part of the healing process for the fans, for the coaches, for the players, and for me. Right. And, and then we didn't have that. So it was um, that made the cancellation of the baseball season that much harder because I really believe we needed the baseball season. And all we got was 17 games. No, and, and we talked about it a lot. You know, do we do we continue to thirty six next season? Do we just pick up where we left off because he he didn't get his due? You know, I I envisioned the season as we went from school to school. There would be some sort of um, honorary um, example that each team would do throughout the season, and and I sense that that's probably what they ha all had planned based on the first 17 games. And and that level of respect was earned and didn't happen. And so it, it felt like we lost two things this year. Yeah, you know, they um, McNeese named the bullpen after him. Yeah. Um, the, the night that uh, they played their last game of the season that I wasn't able to be at. But you're right, you know, I, I think in the in the travels during the season, especially when league play started, there were probably some things planned that were going to honor him. You know, look, we're always going to honor him. We're always going to honor him. But this is Matt Degg's program now. This is Matt Degg's team now. Matt Degg's has the same moral compass that Tony Robichaux had. For sure. But make no mistake about it, he's a very different baseball coach. Sure. And his his approach is different. He's more of a hitting coach, not a pitching coach. Um, he's a little more, no, he's a lot more intense. You know, Tony hated to lose, okay? He hated losing more than he enjoyed winning. Multiply that by about six, and now you've got the personality of Matt Deggs. Um, they got the right guy at the right time. He's the guy that we needed. Uh, and he's going to do a marvelous job as the head coach. 
And I think that's going to start in, um, in 2021. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be surprised if we go out and win the league in 2021. And um, his, his goals are very, very high. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it. It really, it was very difficult not having the season last year. And I think it was, I think it was really tough for him. Right. Well, and I think and, he's, he's um, got a lot to prove, not to us, but to you know, himself. He's doing this thing, and uh, we're going to be good. You know, and, and, and I I'm see, sorry, say it again. I just said he's got a lot to prove, not to us, but to himself. I think Coach Deggs has set some very high standards well, and goals for that program. We got off to a very slow start. And on that Sunday, we had lost the first two games. And on that Sunday, we were going to do pregame interview. And he said, I feel like I'm letting everybody down. And I said, I said, Maddie, it's a long season. We're going to be fine. Um, you know, just, just keep working, keep grinding. You know, it's the thing that you've always said, keep grinding. He said, but I feel I'm failing. And I said, no, it's all going to be all right. And, um, you know, they won seven out of their last eight. Uh, and I think that they were they were getting ready to bust out. I think I, I still don't know how good they would have been, but I think that they would have been a pretty good ball club this past year. But um, you know, he has said it. He said what he does here, he does to honor coach, and that's not going to change. Right. And I look at everybody that's done things to honor coach. You know, Phil Davy Devi put together one heck of a squad of all-star donors and contributors. And that statue is something special. Seven months. Think about it. Seven months. He got, um, he got the guys together. He got the, um, he got the pledges. He, they found one of one of the world's most famous people when it comes he built Jackie Robinson's okay um, and was able to get all of that done from the idea to the unveiling in seven months Phil Devi's a rock star he's Canadian but he's all he's right. a rock star. yep I uh I heard this story, and I've never really talked to Phil about it. When he was when he was pitching at at USL, um, he said something about he would really like it if on nights that he pitched that we would play the Canadian national anthem before the the U.S. national anthem. That didn't go over real well with Robe, um, but you know Phil's here now. He's one of us, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, he's he's really something else. Uh, I'm I'm just amazed at what he was able to do, but not surprised, Jackie, not surprised. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, after watching Phil play at, you know, he moved on and, and I didn't really hear his name again. And then when he came back to town, um, and he started next level Academy and started working with young baseball players, uh, Jackson, my son, was right in that age range. And so uh, he ended up being Jackson's first travel baseball coach 
and uh, the first guy to really help develop him into the picture that he is today. And so we got to know Phil um, real close then. And I think Michael learned a lot from Phil as a coach because Michael was coaching Little League at the time. And so I, I've always got a soft spot in my heart for Phil and the way he approaches baseball, obviously uh, instilled in him by Coach Robe. It's just, it's a good system. It, it, it really is. And, and you know, the, the life lessons that he learned he is he has passed on uh, not only to folks that he's coached, but uh, but especially to his children. He and Heather have done a, a, a an amazing job raising those kids, just as Scott and Tara have with with their family. Uh, and I love the fact that they're still so close to the point where their families got together in front of that statue and had dinner uh, earlier this month. I thought that was very very cool. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, I, I do a lot of, you know, walking. Um, I like to call it running, but it's really just a very uh, quick walk in my neighborhood. And I'll often walk to the statue um, and just, you know, have a little chat with Coach. Uh, it's such a beautiful spot. And I love that he sits in the shadow of the stadium he built. Um, I think it's very appropriate. Yeah, I think so, too. And um, the day that, that we went out there, I got there before the rest of the gang did. And I, and I did it on purpose. And I spent about 15 minutes, you know, just, just visiting, you know, rereading all of the things that are, that are there and looking at the detail on, on everything that was done. And look, somebody had, had, and I found out later, I think that it was Tim Leger, Gunner's dad and, and the football coach that had gone out with somebody else and they had weeded that flower area just a day or two before. Um, everybody I think is um, taking a little ownership in that. Right. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. He and Gunner had a really great relationship. And, and I love that, that Tim was a part of that and that, that Gunner saw such success. Um, his injury, I think always um, kind of slowed him down. He could have had such a stronger finish, you know? Well, you know, the pandemic really hurt him because he had gone, uh, he had gone to Nashville. He had, he had worked out and for the first time in a couple of years, he was a hundred percent healthy and the Indians signed him and he was going to get a chance, you know, to go to spring training and, and restart his career as a healthy pitcher. And then of course, you know, the pandemic hit and that got taken away. My guess is he's going to give it another shot. Um, I won't be surprised, Jackie. I won't be surprised if there's a weekend where I say, you know what, I'm headed to Cleveland because Gunner's pitching on such and such a day. I'm not going to be surprised if that happens because I know his ability. I know his work ethic. I know who his mom and daddy are. Okay. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to be shocked if that happens. Will you let me know which date you pick? Because um, I haven't been to that Paul Park yet, and I'd love to add it to my list. So uh, if you want an entourage, I know some Russos who would love to join along. That'll that'll work. I have been to that ballpark. I, I saw a game with the Indians and Astros. We were playing, I don't remember, Akron, Kent State, somebody in football. And um, so we, you know, we got there early enough to where we were able to drive to Cleveland and, and see the game that night and, and got caught in a hellacious thunderstorm in the seventh inning which canceled the rest of the game. And we all looked like drowned rats by the time we got back to the hotel. So which ballpark's your favorite? College, pro, the ones you've been to games in, which one do you feel like this is the place to watch a game? I've been fortunate enough 
to do broadcast games at Minute Maid Park, at the Astrodome, at the Metrodome in Minneapolis, at um, AT&T Park in San Francisco. Um, there's nothing like sitting in a major league ballpark. I mean, there, there's just nothing like it. You talk about the best seat in the house now. You know, you've got the best seat in the house. Um, I loved the old Alex Box Stadium, mm-hmm. uh, even though, you know, the, the, the press box was outside and you were kind of in the middle of the stands, but it, but it just had a character that the new place doesn't have for me. I look, I love broadcasting from there because it's a beautiful ballpark, but, but it, it's missing a little bit of that character, I think, but I loved doing games there. But, you know, obviously my answer is Russo Park, Jackie. I would rather be at Russo Park doing a game than any place else in America. And that might even be TD Ameritrade Park if I ever get a chance to do a game from there. Now, Rosenblatt wasn't bad either. I'll just tell you that. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, And I served it up for you. So I was hoping that's where you would land. So thank you for hitting that one out of the park. Um, And I would agree 100%. The only thing that comes close to me was when we got to go to Williamsport and watch the Little League World Series in 2011 when the team from Lafayette was there. That was pretty special. That's on my bucket list. I'd like to go to Williamsport before I'm done. I, that's, just a, that's just a great thing. It, it really feels like baseball Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they're going to have a major league game this year at the Field of Dreams over in Dyersburg, Iowa. And I can't wait for that. Right. That, uh, that's going to be pretty neat, too. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope that everybody's healthy um, long enough for that to happen. Uh, now, your um, your beloved Astros, and I know they're really beloved by you, uh, but I-, I noticed in a couple of games, uh, was it yesterday or the day before, there were a number of players getting plunked at the plate. Jay, uh, do you think that's gonna really ramp up with uh, opening day today as the season moves on for them? Uh, I'm not going to be surprised if if it happens a little bit. I don't expect it to be really widespread, but you know they they have the name the Cheetos now, and they kind of earned it. So that's you know it's the way it goes. And the asterisks, I like that one the most probably. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that they uh, should all wear a little extra Evo shield when they play the Yankees because I'm sure they're going to come a little harder for them than usual. Um, if we look at everybody who was in some sort of scandal around uh, the end of the winter, beginning of the spring this year, who do you think is most relieved by having uh, COVID distract from the scandal that they were in? It's a toss-up for me between LSU basketball and the Astros, because uh, I think they both were about to get um, a little more publicity than they wanted. Well, um, you know, LSU still may get that publicity. Um, you know, if you read reports that there's probably something coming down the pike, but no, I, you know, you, the Astros now have had an extra three months or so to, to kind of get past everything. And um, I don't, that thing would have been talked about every game they played in had the season started on time. It'll be a little bit less so now. It's still going to get mentioned. Um, and there's still going to probably be a price to pay. But no, I, I, I think they're the ones who came out best with, uh, with, with this pandemic. Yeah, slowing things down. I have to agree. Um, I am shocked to tell you that this has been 56 minutes 
um, that we've been talking because it feels like about six minutes. Uh, but Michael just, uh, as my producer, likes to keep me on track. So about four minutes ago, he sent me a message that said 30 minutes left. And I was like, oh, no, my friend, we're 50 minutes into this already. Um, Jay, I could do this for hours. Um, the number of stories that you have, have the experiences that you have had, um, of all your sports, of all the people, of all the things, not counting the moments we've covered and obviously Coach Robe, what are some of the things that people probably don't know about the time you've had in sports that have really touched you the most and meant the most to you? Tony Robichaud's responsible for it because I had never seen a student athlete get their degree. And when they started having graduation at home plate, Jackie, it gets me every year when I see those young men walk across and Dr. Savoy is out there and in all of his regalia and the, and the deans of the various to give those young men their degrees. Nothing touches me more because while we're all concerned about winning, there's a reason why these student athletes go to college and it's to get their degree. And being able to see that and actually see young people gets me every time. And, and I got to tell you, the, the, maybe the one that, that got me, I didn't get a chance to physically witness it. When I saw Robert Hunt with his parents, after getting his degree, knowing where that kid came from, which was nothing, becomes the first person ever in his family to graduate college and yesterday signed a contract that's going to guarantee him five million dollars that excites me an awful lot too i'm very very happy for him but no watching watching student athletes get their degrees is my happiest time you know um mine too and i love it and i'm so glad you brought it up um the fact that hunt got an eight million dollar contract with five million guaranteed i could not stop crying i was so touched I am so happy for him, having watched him play and knowing where he came from. That was a beautiful moment. And so I'm glad you brought it up and all respect to the work that he did to get to where he is. Um, I thought, because I'm a UL fan, you know, for life, I thought every college did that. I was stunned when we go to Jackson's first season at Millsaps and it's senior day, you know, it's the last home game of the season. And I said, When's the, how early do we have to get there for the graduation? And Jackson said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, aren't they doing something big for the seniors? Like, isn't there a graduation ceremony? And they bring out the jersey framed and they give them the photo album with all their pictures for four years. And he goes, mom, colleges don't do that other than UL. I was like, what? I was floored. And it made me love that so much more. Um, it, it is a very special thing that, that Tony started and that we still do. And I am so grateful for it. Yeah, I am too. It's great. It's it wonderful. really is. Um, Jay, it's 11 o'clock. We have reached our hour. I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing these thoughts with us. I can't wait to see what you do next. And I mostly can't wait to hear you call a game soon. I, I hope I get to call a game soon. Otherwise, you may see me on the street corner with a sign that says, we'll broadcast Cajun games for food. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I have a new project that I'm about to embark on. I can't really 
talk about it, but I'm going to be working with a with a woman that I've known for 25 years and that I respect tremendously. It's going to give me a chance to show off uh, my interviewing and writing skills. I can't wait to get started. That's coming right down the pike very soon. Well, as soon as you have details, I want to know because I want to be able to help promote it and share the word. Um, anytime I can listen to the velvet tones of Jay Walker's voice is a good day for me. You're the best. You're the best. Thank you to everyone who watched and listened and subscribed. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this hour with Jay as much as I did. You probably didn't cry as much as I did, um, but it was a cathartic one at I assure you. Uh, I look forward to next week when Justin Sylvester will be joining us. If you don't know him, you will love the opportunity to get to. Uh, grew up in Brobridge. He's an Acadiana boy. Uh, got his world-famous start working at Tsunami Restaurant and is now one of the co-hosts of Daily Pop on E! every morning to millions of people. Uh, he's been on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. He's been on Beverly Hills Nannies. And he is going to give us a look at what life has been like for him in LA since moving there and through the pandemic. And it's going to be full of funny, funny moments. So we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, take care of yourselves. Well, the day is through.